Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rood. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoe-Rude, and today I am absolutely thrilled and honored to bring on the show, Randy King. Randy is an education-based self-defense coach with over 15 years experience who has taught thousands of people all over the world to better understand conflict management and violence prevention. In his quest to help people better understand conflict and violence, He has had the privilege to work with a truly diverse group of people, including communities such as the First Nations in Canada, women's shelters, and at-use risk, as well as professional organizations like law enforcement and private corporations. He also has an absolutely amazing podcast channel called Randy King Live, and I have had the great good fortune to train with Randy in person and also over the phone and on some of his online training. So he's somebody I am super familiar with and absolutely love to talk to. So I am so thrilled, Randy, that you are here. Welcome to the show. Uh, Well, thank you, number one, for that amazing intro. I'm like, I want to listen to this episode. That was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you better when it comes out. (laughs) Oh, I definitely will. Don't you worry. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be on the show. I was honored to be asked because I know you normally focus more on women in this space. So I'm just I'm happy to be one of the male guests. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, absolutely. And you're actually the first individual male interviewer or interviewee that I have had. And I wanted to do this for a very specific reason is, yes, I do focus on women and having gotten to work with you in person and having been able to be part of a lot of your online training sessions, I know that you have like a vast and deep experience with women in all kinds of different environments and situations. And so you're one of the, one of the men that I know and trust who can actually speak to issues that are really important to women. And and you're one of the men that actually gets it. So I think the number is growing, but you are one of the first people that I've ever um, spoken with who really had that curiosity of like, you know, what do women deal with is different from what guys generally do and how can I help them? So that's why I wanted to get you on. Awesome. And thank you for all those compliments. I do really appreciate it. I do. Uh, I've really tried to look at this from all angles. And like you said in my bio, it's it's not because I'm like, I don't know, the word woke is being thrown around. It's not because I'm woke. It's just because I, I've worked with people who truly need help. And I have such a diverse client base that, you know, the stuff that I was teaching when I started, because when I was in my early 20s, when I started my first uh, kind of brand KPC self-defense, it was KPC martial arts at the time. I was teaching that combatives, bro, skull t-shirt stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's nothing wrong with it. There's lots of good stuff in there. But I realized it wasn't working for the, the female clients that we were getting. And just, I don't know, by luck or by, it wasn't by design. We started getting more and more women training. And of course, if you're good, I don't know, I, I don't want to judge anybody, but if you're trying to be really good at this, you're going to help the clients you get. And for some reason, I worked really well with women. So women tended to train with me. And then that opened up a whole new world. Like 
there's a saying where the wool is pulled up from over your eyes. I feel like every, for like the first five or six years, I really researched this. There was new wool every day. Like I hear a new story and be like, oh my God, what that happens. And oh my God, what that happens. Because if you meet me, I'm not a small human. I'm six foot one and 200 and too many pounds. And I am, uh, I'm not unconfident. <laughs> I'm not shy. So a lot of the issues that women or not just women, but smaller humans in general were facing just weren't concerns of mine when I was a bouncer. So the pivot I think was necessary for me to genuinely do what I wanted to do. I left advertising. I was making way more money doing advertising to open a gym in the ghetto to help people. And if you really want to help people, you have to listen to their stories and then you end up kind of where I am now, I think. Yeah. Well, it's an, it's a remarkable journey and I want to dig into it. But first, I have a couple of slightly different questions for you. Oh, sure. Are you ready for those? I'm ready. Go. What is the most fun you've ever had? Is this an adult show or a PG show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, most fun I've ever had that I'll talk about. Um, oh, I, I have you. You know me. I'm laughing 99 percent of the time. Uh, I have fun a lot. Uh, most fun I've ever had. That's such a good question. I know people say that to stall, and that's exactly what I'm doing. That's a very good question. Uh, most fun I've ever had. You know what? Honestly, I think some of the most fun I ever had was in, uh, so myself and Rory Miller, a mentor of mine, big name in the industry. If your listeners don't know who he is, grab his books. They're great. We went to Bulgaria to teach a violence dynamics seminar. And just kind of that whole experience of being in a former Soviet Union country was awesome. But we, myself and Rory, we, uh, there was this giant, we were in Varna, Varna, Bulgaria. And there was this giant, like in the middle of the city, this giant monument that the Soviets put there to show like the friendship between the Bulgarians and the Soviets. We wanted to see it. So we climbed up to the top of it and we saw kids playing on the top of this huge, like maybe through 200 foot, uh, maybe 100 foot monument, like a really big monument. And so we followed these sketchy kids down this alley. So just as a preface for everybody listening, I'm going to do stuff in this story I would advise my clients not to do. So we, we found this kid and he's like, I can show you how to get in there. You can get to the top. So myself, Rory, and two other people we were with, we followed this kid into this like narrow passageway and then into a concrete monument. And in that monument were a bunch of kids playing. We literally could have been jumped or robbed or whatever. But that was, I think, one of the most fun experiences I had because we we went off the beaten path and we saw some stuff that I don't think a lot of people saw. And I, I uh-huh. like that. I love new experiences. Oh, that's that's cool. And I can relate to that, you know, getting off the beaten path when you're traveling thing and having it be slightly risky. But uh, it is really where you discover the stuff that the locals know about and the tourists don't. Exactly. And that's, I think, one of the problems with the self-defense industry, not to get too into it because I have more questions, but just while I remember it, is self-defense isn't designed to make you freaked out and paranoid, not do adventures. It's designed that when you do do those adventures, you pay attention and don't get in trouble, right? So Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So if you could add one additional body part to your body, what would it be? PG show. Uh, PG show. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Now on that one. An extra body part. So like a, like a, a totally new one, not replacing one? Just an add-on. Add-on. I don't know. Maybe, I think a tail. Tails are pretty cool. They provide extra balance. So I think that'd be neat to have as like vestigial appendage and also like for extra balance. I think that'd be neat. Oh, that's cool. I didn't think of that. I Honestly, I had a different question for you, but I woke up this morning and this was what was in my brain. Okay. So <laughs> I was like, oh, I've got to ask him this. Yeah, I think a tail yeah. would be awesome. 
that's pretty cool. And also a really good weapon. Exactly. Uh, I, I know from having had German shepherds that those <laughs> tails can be pretty, pretty damaging. Well, especially. Get in the wheel. Yeah. And especially if I could use it like as a, as a grip, right? Because I could be like, look, I don't have any weapons that tail gun, right? Like that'd be Ooh, pretty cool. <laughs> kind of like a monkey tail. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm envisioning. A monkey tail. Oh, that's neat. All right. Well, I didn't even think about that. So that's why I like to ask unusual questions. <laughs> So I know you're a dude, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway. What is your favorite self-care practice? I don't think self-care is gendered. At least it shouldn't be. Um, no, but most men don't talk about it. That's stupid. Uh, so uh, my <laughs> so I'm actually, this is a good question. It's kind of a, you actually stumbled onto a deep question because I'm working on that right now. So COVID obviously affected me pretty dramatically. So I've been trying to find ways to not hold stress in my body, which I tend to do. And all of the ways I used to get rid of stress were illegal, right? Punching things, touching people, travel, all those things. So mm -hmm. what I've been doing now is, so I like to meditate in the morning. That's one of my favorite self-care things. But the one I'm really enjoying right now is I have this app that's like a brain game app. And it's like a brain workout that you do every morning. And it helps you increase short-term memory, mem recall, that kind of stuff. So I like to like get up early. I've set a new schedule where I get up before my family. So I have a, a pre-teen daughter, teenager in like two weeks. She'll be 13 in a couple of weeks. And I have my fiance work shift work. So if I wake up at seven in the morning, I get three hours by myself, which is, which is amazing in the life that I lead, right? So waking up early, I think is probably, I would have to say my favorite self-care thing because it gives me that three hours on my own to either meditate, do my games, practice stoicism, which I'm into right now, or it lets me catch up on work and not affect my family time. So giving myself a schedule has actually freed up a ton of my time. So that's definitely my favorite self-care thing is going to bed at a certain time, waking up at a certain time. So I have that, those free three hours to kind of just be myself. Cause you know, you're a parent, right? Yep. Like when you have kids in the house, like everything kind of becomes about them and that's, that's okay. But then you lose yourself a little bit. So that three hours is where I rediscover myself. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I used to try to get my by myself time as a mom at the end of the day, like when everybody uh -huh. had gone to bed and the house quieted down. But then the, the consequence was that was, yes, I did get peace and quiet and that space of my own. But then I was up until like midnight. Exactly. So, yeah, that didn't work too well. <laughs> So what advice would you give young people today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Well, another really good question. What would I, what advice would I give to other people? Listen, <laughs> listen to what the people are telling you. I think that's a trait lost on the young, at least for me, maybe I'm definitely speaking from my own house here, but I remember there was a time I was in security for a long time, most like 11 years of my life. And I remember when I was 19, this guy, he, he gave me this speech, like how to do the job and how to behave. And I was like, I'm never going to be like you, old man. And then I remember at 31, I was giving pretty much verbatim the same speech to a kid about 18. And I was like, oh my God, if I just would have listened so much earlier to the person above me, this would have, this would have like compressed time. So just like, I know when you're young and in your twenties, you think, you know, everything and we all did, but just remember you don't. And just listen to people who are on the same road you're on. And maybe you can compress some time and not have to make all the same mistakes. Oh, boy, that would have made a huge difference for me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. So where did you grow up and what was that like? 
So I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, and that's in Canada. For the people that are not great with geography, I'm in the province above Montana. There's two because Montana is so wide, but I'm in the one that is attached to the Rockies. So if you go from Colorado straight north, you'll hit our city. I grew up in northern Canada, and it's kind of funny because a lot of people think Canada is north, but most of our population actually lives further south than the northern states. But I'm actually in northern Canada. I'm about 500 miles from the U.S. border. So I kind of grew up in a place where it was, uh, there was lots of like outdoor stuff, but I am in a city of a million people. It wasn't a million back then. And it's also oil country. So we have a lot of violence and roughnecks and that kind of stuff. So I grew up in like very, a very blue collar area, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's, that's where I grew up. So I'm from, I live born and raised in Edmonton. I still live here. I do plan to move eventually, but I do still live here. So my family's here and stuff, but yeah, it's a very blue collar city. That's, that's what I grew up with. Like people work hard and go home and, and drink. And that's, that's the, that's the background that I have. And did you play hockey? I actually, so yes and no. So I, I tried to play hockey, but despite all the way I like to tell people this is all of this like joy and laughter that I have now that used to all be rage. So when I played hockey, I wasn't good at team sports because if somebody else messed up, I would hate them for it because I'm very independent. And I think that everybody should be performing at the same level I perform at. So I actually got kicked out of hockey very young for too much fighting, which is crazy. I kicked out of hockey (laughs) for too much fighting. And so that's actually what drew me to martial arts was that martial arts is about you. If you fail, that's your fault, right? It's nobody else's fault. It's not your coach's fault. You failed. It's not, you know, it's not a team member's fault. You failed. It's you, you didn't put in the work. You didn't do it. So that's why like single sports have always really appealed to me because I didn't work well in the team. And I still actually kind of struggle working in a team, to be honest. Uh-huh. Yeah. So so then when did you actually get into martial arts? How old were you? I was 10. Okay. So yeah. That's pretty young. Yeah, pretty pretty young. And only it would have been earlier. We just I come from a very, very poor family. So we didn't have any money to put me into it. And I was a very chunky child. I was a very heavy kid. I have a hypothyroid and it was undiagnosed until I was 13. So I was exceptionally heavy and I was very bullied, which I didn't think helped with the rage problems. And so Yeah. So I decided to join martial arts. And honestly, like I didn't join it for any other reason other than legitimately. I liked the Power Rangers TV show and nobody picked on the Power Rangers because they knew martial arts. So I thought that was my way out of getting picked on. Right. Yeah. So what style did you first learn? So I started with Taekwondo. Edmonton has, so Edmonton's an interesting city when it comes to martial arts. And it kind of might like give you a look into kind of who I became as a person. Edmonton at the time had more Taekwondo schools per capita than anywhere else in the world. There was so many Taekwondo schools here. So that's what I did first. And I got a black belt in that. And then as we go on in my story and journey, martial arts, traditional martial arts failed me twice very, very hard, which is kind of where I got to where I am now. So yeah, I started in Taekwondo. That's where I began. Okay, cool. And then what? So then I, I moved on. So again, Edmonton's an interesting place because it's so blue collar and there's so much money to be made in the oil sense, or at least there was during the oil boom. And that's kind of when I came up as a bouncer. So I have to actually say that for lots of my bouncing stories, because my bouncing stories almost sound like fiction because they're so crazy, but they're only sound like fiction because we imported everybody with a low education level and drugs were available and they were making $200,000 a year at 18 years old. You don't make good decisions then. 
18's Good heavens. Yeah. 18's legal drinking age here as well in the province I'm in. It's the only province that's 18. Everywhere else is 19. So all my bouncer are crazy. So from Taekwondo, I moved, I got beat up pretty bad. So I moved into Muay Thai and catch wrestling. And then for Muay Thai and catch wrestling, that worked really well for me until I got stabbed. So then after I got stabbed, I moved into Filipino martial arts, which then led me, led me to Krav Maga. And now I kind of do everything eclectically. So I do some Thai boxing, a lot of Filipino martial arts. Still, I love them. I do, I still box weekly. I still do catch wrestling, that kind of stuff. So I just kind of play with a lot of different areas. But yeah, I went Taekwondo to, to Thai boxing and catch wrestling from Matt to Filipino martial arts. And then from Matt to Krav Maga, that's kind of where I stopped. And so when did you start working as a bouncer? When I was 19 years old. So uh, I, I was never very good in school. I have, I had undiagnosed ADHD. I still technically undiagnosed. I just have all the symptoms. So I didn't do very well in school. And I've, I've always been kind of a gamer in the way that like, you know, I like to do the bare minimum to get through stuff. So I went through high school and I did the bare minimum courses to get through. And I kind of just, you know, played my cards as close to chess as possible. So college wasn't really an option because I took like the, the basic courses and colleges weren't looking at that. I was also looking to become a police officer when I was in my youth, but I'm colorblind. And so that took me out of qualification. At the time, it's no longer a problem, but back then it was. So I decided I needed some kind of job and I wanted to do some kind of security. And I was working at Wendy's and I was flipping burgers and I hated it. So uh, I went to a bar and this is the dumbest, this is the dumbest dumb boy story. My daughter calls me the king of the dumb boys when she hears my stories. So this is the dumbest dumb boy story. I went to a bar. And I heard that a guy got stabbed six times. And so I was like, oh, so you have a job opening. And I applied at that bar. And then, oh, spoiler alert, I got stabbed at that bar later in my career. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bright. I don't want anybody to think I am. I just know fancy words. So did you think that because you had that martial art background, that bouncing would be kind of a piece of cake or like the perfect place to apply your skills? nailed it right on the head, Cynthia. Exactly. That's exactly what I thought. I'm like, I have this black belt. And back then, like there wasn't really like, I'm, I'm 40. So I'm in that weird generation where I grew up with the internet, but I was already kind of a teenager. So we, I went there and Taekwondo, like when they sold me Taekwondo, and this is one of the problems in industries where people sell something, they try and sell it as everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, it's Taekwondo. So it's a sport and you can go to the Olympics. I don't think you could back then, but also it's self-defense, but also it's this and that. And so I, I believed it. I, I bought everything they were selling. So I thought I was invincible. I had all these trophies that said I was cool. I was, I was very high ranked in my country, which isn't that big of a deal. There's only like 35 million of us, but I was, I was doing pretty good. And I went to a bar and my first fight, I got beat bad. So, but I did hundred percent think that because I had this Taekwondo black belt, that that was going to translate to real world violence. And it absolutely did not. So what happened in your mind when you realized that? That's where the shift came. That's when I started trying other arts. So it was, I like I said, I come from a kind of a, a poor background and a little bit of a, of a traumatic past. So being lied to, wasn't new to me. I wasn't like super shocked. It did kind of take away some of the luster of what I was doing. And it made, it did make me feel like I wasted some time, but I just used that tradition to do something else. So I just kind of adapted, right? Like found a new problem, realized the solution I had wasn't effective. 
So I needed to find a new solution. And then later on, I found that solution that I found also wasn't effective. And so I just had to keep going and, you know, like trial and error until I figured it out. So, so as a bouncer, you're dealing with people who are under the influence of substances. You're dealing with people whose minds are impaired, who Mm -hmm. may be emotionally excited or in a different emotional state. Yeah. So like, what are, what are the most essential skills that you needed to, you know, calm down a situation or to remove somebody out of the club or to break up? an interaction. What, what did you find that you needed? So it's kind of interesting what I was told I needed. And what I found I needed were very different things. And that's kind of the problem with the image of bouncers is they think they're supposed to be this like super tough, beat anybody up person. And when I started, that was literally what I was told. You have to fight everybody because if you don't, we're going to fire you and you know, they're going to think you're weak or whatever. So when I first started bouncing from like 19 to 23, I was not a, I don't, I, I'm not proud of those years, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I fought a lot and I thought that's what you needed. And then at around 24, I was like, I don't like getting hit in the head all the time. Um, At that time, I also had post-concussion syndrome from an injury from a bad coach. So I was trying to not fight as much. I had already proved to myself too. So it's easy to say this, like, and this is, uh, if you have any young men listening to this, it's very easy for me to say, I decided that violence wasn't the answer, but it was easy for me to do that because I already knew I was good at violence. Does that make sense? Yes. So because I already had answered all of my questions, right? Am I a coward? Can I beat people up? All those like kind of male egoic questions you have, those were all answered in my first couple of years of bouncing. I knew what I was made of. I knew what I was capable of. Once I knew that and I had that confidence, it was easy for me to shift to the skills you actually need as a bouncer, which is active listening, de-escalation, tricking drunk people. Like I think I just put this on a post recently on my social media, but Honestly, if you can't trick a drunk person out of the bar, you're in the wrong business. Like it's, it's people make it, a lot of people sell their careers on being a bouncer. Um, and they make it, they make a, they make a bowl of popcorn out of a kernel of truth. You know what I mean? Like, so they, they, they tell a fish story with it. You can be, you can be the bouncer that fights everybody. It's just, it's not a good way to make money unless that's, that's how you identify yourself. The easiest way to be a bouncer is to be friendly. I actually have a program called Smiling Security. And the reason why I call it that is when I became the Randy that I think everybody kind of knows now, friendly, goofy, jokey Randy. The, that was one of my one of my biggest moments in bouncing was that was the defining moment was I was the guy on the front door because back then, I'm, like I said, I'm six foot one and I'm, I was probably 230 pounds back then. I was the smallest guy on my team. Like I I was the runt of the litter, which is kind of crazy. Everybody else was like six, four steroided up tattoos. And I'm like a friendly little dude with dimples. Hey, what's up? Right. In fact, we went out drinking. I used to tell the waitresses, like, why are you guys doing like, oh, they're all bouncers and I'm their accountant. And never once was the woman like, oh, okay. She was always like, yeah, that makes sense. I was like, damn it. I'm a a bouncer. So so anyways, I walked into a fight and there was two guys that were going to fight. They met me at the front door. I was the front door greeter because I was so friendly. And they were like ready to go. They were going to like kill each other. So I walked up like, hey guys, what's going on? And they turned around and looked at me. And then the one guy, his posture changed, his shoulders slumped. And he was like, oh man, you, we can't punch the smiley guy. And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a light bulb moment. Exactly. So right there was like, wait a minute, if I'm friendly, they'll fight me less. 
that sounds way better because honestly, I'm not here for the fights. I'm here for meeting women. That's why I'm in the bar. I don't want to get punched in the face. I want to talk to pretty ladies. That's that's the whole purpose. So once I found that pivot, that those are the skills I think you need. Those are not the skills that people sell you, though. That's the problem. So de-escalation, being friendly, actively listening, not taking stuff personal, realizing that most people you're going to, I don't know who says this, it might be Tony Blauer, it might be Richard Dimitri, there's some bleed over there, but realizing that not everybody's a threat to your life. It's just mostly good people having bad days. And that's, that's the issue with bars is you go to a, you drink about everything, right? We're happy. Let's drink. We're sad. Let's drink. I'm angry. Let's drink. I'm depressed. Let's drink. We got married. We're drinking. My father died. We're drinking. So you're getting a roll of the dice in those environments, right? And then once you realize people are, people very often tell you how to stop the violence, right? Like they'll give you instructions. Like, please don't touch me. I'm having a bad day. You could be like, okay, cool. I'm not going to touch you. You can't be in here anymore. But why are you having a bad day? And you can usually articulate that once you find the root cause, realize the root cause isn't you and it's not, they're not attacking your ego, they're not attacking your honor or your reputation. I just realized as a good person, just having a really rough time, it's very easy to get people out. And those are the skills that we need to focus more on is the negotiation skills and less the physical skills. You still need them because some people just are going to fight, right? Like, Mm-hmm. police officers get this i think too but i know bouncers get it as well is some people just want a story some people just want to be the person that fought the bouncer i i, I always pick up my uncle all the time i hope he never listens to any of these uh podcasts but uh my uncle tells the same story every christmas of the one time he fought a bouncer like that's literally every single christmas so but and that's what that's what it is right some people want to make you their story so you do still need physical skills don't get me wrong It just shouldn't be the lion's share of your training. Well, you know, what's really fascinating about that is you're talking about basically social violence. And this is what a lot of women deal with, right? It's it's a family member or a friend or a coworker or something, and something's going on. And if you have the skills that you were talking about, really the active listening and being able to, to not take things personally and understand kind of what is actually going on. Mm That is what allows you to avoid violence most of the time. And so, I mean, a direct transfer, you you had kind of the uh, high-level graduate course in it as, as a bouncer, but what you're talking about is really applicable to all of us. I think so. That's kind of what I built this new, my new company, 8020 Conflict Management Strategies on, is this this 80% education, 20% physical skills, because mm-hmm. the industry right now is all about physical skills. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Physical skills are important because, you know, it's better to, it's the spare tire analogy, right? You may never need your spare tire, but when you need your spare tire, you need your spare tire. So it's better to have those skills, but the odds of using them, if you're good at the other stuff, it drops exponentially. Sometimes you're going to run into a, a person that just wants to throw down. That happens. And we're talking social violence primarily. Um, and that's the other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about bouncing is they treat they treat the social violence as if it's predatory violence as if you know their life is on the line and very often it's not very often it's a guy swinging punch like i was stabbed there don't get me wrong it does happen sometimes but i worked for 11 years full time for 6 6 nights a week 8 hours a day i've only had well, i had a but i had 18 knives pulled on me in the entire career but statistically that's almost nothing in the amount of time that i worked right so mm-hmm. 
most of my most of my career was chatting people up, getting to know their name so I could walk up with some kind of best authority, right? If I learn your name and then you're in a bad spot and I usually am like, hey, Fred, you need to chill out, man. Knowing somebody's name pulls them really quickly out of a lot of anger states, right? So just because it gets that human part of their brain, it gets them thinking again, it pulls them forward. So if you can like make this holistic strategy where you're you have communication skills, you have boundaries, you have your physical skills. If you can make that all work together, the odds of you needing your physical skills are low, but they are still required. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. That's a great encapsulation of you know what you do, what I do. And I think there's actually a growing number of self-defense coaches who are embracing oh, yeah. that paradigm, you know, and no longer dominating everything with the physical piece. And Maybe that's one reason why so many more women are now feeling comfortable actually jumping into a program or a class to learn is because we're not leading with learn how to fight. We're we're leading with other things that you can use in all different situations, not just self-defense ones. Exactly. And I want to, I really want to state before I say is that I know women are on a monolith. They're not all like all women are one thing, but most women in my experience have way more, way more skills in verbal de-escalation than they think they do. And a lot of men think they can fight. So when you are promoting a fight class, men are like, oh, I'll get better at fighting. And women are like, well, I, I, I've never tried to fight. I don't want to fight. Why would I go with that class? But once you start saying, oh, we're also going to sharpen your verbal de-escalation skills, that's going to appeal to them because they've probably had a lot of success in verbal de-escalation. And so mm-hmm. if you can give them the things they have successes in, as well as improve maybe areas that are weak, that's going to, that's going to be a, a far wider appeal. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you just briefly sort of define the difference between social violence and predatory violence since we kind of brought that up already? Can you just kind of walk that out a wee bit? Briefly is not my strong suit, but I will really try. Uh, So (laughs) I think the best, the easiest way to say social violence is for the good of the group, whether that group exists or doesn't. So it could be your own reputation and ego, or it could be for the group you're with. A social or predatory predatory violence is all about it's transactional. It's they need something from you. They want to use you as a plaything. So the, the two differences are one is about like status and one is about resources. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's the it's the social ones where all the things that that we were just talking about the the before the fight. Yeah. How much in in the predatory do you think those oh. actually, you know, depending if you're if you're dealing with one of the three percent who's just, you know, got the plan, you're the one, and I'm going to use you as a toy, no matter what. Obviously, I don't think these are going to work. But how much do these skills actually work with the with the asocial? So. My position, I'll let you ask the whole question next time before I try to interrupt you. Um, <laughs> I, I actually disagree with that. I think soft skills, especially when it comes to boundary setting, are more important in asocial violence than they are in social violence. So social violence, because the goal of it is ego-driven and it's status-driven, you can kind of puzzle your way through that. And a lot of us have just natural experience in this. 
We talk about predatory violence. When people hear predatory or asocial, they think like serial killers, but it's not just serial killers. Bullies exist in there. Creeps exist in there. There's a bunch of other subsets of predatory violence that exists. When you look at predators, predators choose prey that they believe they can take, that they believe is weak. Social violence also kind of in the same way, but predatory is different. They're looking not to get hurt. They're looking not to get caught, et cetera. It's not about selection. It's about deselection. You cannot choose if you're selected by a predator. You absolutely can't. Like you could do all the things you want. You can get tough and wear skull logos and shave your head like GI Jane or whatever the internet tells you to do. And you just might look like that person's fourth grade teacher they hate and they might just pick you anyways, right? Mm-hmm. So we cannot we cannot control being selected. So that's why I hate personally when people are like, well, what was she wearing or what was her hairstyle? Or, that doesn't fuck. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter, right? So what matters is if the person chose you, why they chose you, and then showing that person they chose the wrong person. When we look at predatory violence, predators pick the weakest possible prey. It's just like the law of nature, right? They're not going after the strong antelopes, they're going after the weak or the sick. So if you're selected, and again, you have no control over being selected, it's your job to get deselected. And the best way to do that is to show you're a harder target. So moving well through space helps, but the two major factors that help the most are strong boundaries and strong social connections. If a predator chooses you and you don't give them any ground, you have strong boundaries, know who you are, you're too hard to manipulate. If you don't know what your boundaries and limits are, you're easy to manipulate. So mm-hmm. that person's going to choose you. And also, if you don't have a strong social structure, you have nowhere else to go. And predatory violence 101, if you do have a strong social structure, they try to separate you from that social structure. So the soft skills are equally as important, just not in the same way. Like you're probably not going to de-escalate a person that wants to harm you. You're probably not. If they're set on it, you're not going to do it. But if your boundaries are strong and you look like you're capable of stopping that person, they're going to choose weaker prey. So The soft skills that you use in bouncing aren't effective in predatory violence, but there are a ton of soft skills that are important. And maybe I'm biased because I just released a boundary setting course, but honestly, boundary setting is the more I research it, it's the roots of self-defense. If you don't have strong reinforceable boundaries, if you don't know who you are and what your limits are, very easy for you to be manipulated, whether it's short-term muggings or it's long-term abuse. It's it's just, you're going to get selected for it if you don't have those two things, strong boundaries, strong social structures. Well, you're reading my mind because the very next question I had was, let's talk about boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and I, I am fortunate enough to have been able to hear you talk about boundaries a couple of different times. So can you just briefly, I think you usually talk about six different types of boundaries. Can you just briefly give a, like, what's your take? Sure. So let's, I'll go really, I'll make this as uh, short as possible. So boundary setting comes in two flavors to me. It comes in short-term and long-term. Short-term is what we usually talk about in self-defense. But if you look at the numbers of violence, most most violence happens with from people you know, right? 70% across the board, 80% if you look at women, 90% if you look at children. So if we look at violence like that, we have the short-term boundary setting, which is like, you know, put up your boundary, verbalize, et cetera, enforce, leave. Long-term boundary setting is a little bit different. That's where you want to have those reinforceable boundaries, bring them up in relationships, et cetera. 
In long-term boundaries, you have either setting them in new relationships or setting them in old relationships. Those are important things all in the course. I won't go too deep into it, but there are six different pillars of boundaries that I like to talk about. I mean, this is relatively new to the program. Again, if you follow me on social media, you probably heard me say, oh, guess what, guys? I just rewrote the whole program one day before filming the program. (laughs) And I did because... That's, I think the most important thing to me is finding new research that's going to help people. I'll, I'll put the extra, I'll burn the midnight oil to get the best information out to people. That, that's my job. So the six boundaries I like to talk about, and they all exist in a long-term boundary setting. Only a few we talk about in short-term boundary settings. So they're physical boundaries, how people touch you, your physical space, running joke with me. I'm not a big fan of hugs. So that's a physical boundary, right? Please don't hug mm-hmm. me if I don't know you. Right. If I see you, Cynthia, you can hug me if you want, because I know you. Right. But oh, like, yay. Yeah. But like random strangers who I just meet at a seminar as a guy who travels and meets like thousands of people a year. I don't want to be hugging every human. It's just too much. So that's physical boundaries. We then have sexual boundaries. That's how you like to be interacted with sexually. Now, that could be bedroom stuff, but that also could be like maybe don't tell sexual jokes at work. I don't like that. That's violating a boundary. It could also be with how people touch you. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm going to put money down you have, but most dudes like to touch the small of some of a woman's back when they're passing them. Mm-hmm. Some women find that creepy as hell. Some women don't care, but that, that would be a violation of a sexual boundary because it's touching a sexual spot, ears, nape of neck, obviously genitals, back, that kind of stuff. It borders more on sexual than physical. So that's your second one. The third one is material boundaries. That's stuff like um, your stuff, right? Like how somebody borrows things from you, lending money. But it also counts with like people taking your wallet or people drugging your drink. These all fall under material boundaries. It's you taking care of the things you have. There's time boundaries. Time boundaries are how you like interact with time. Um, time boundaries are one of my weakest areas. I, I am bad at self-care and giving myself time. We then have intellectual boundaries. Intellectual boundaries are your opinion, how people see your opinion, right? So let's say we were having this conversation, Cynthia, and you you said something, and instead of me listening and then maybe agreeing or disagreeing, me just shutting you down, that would be a violation of intellectual boundaries. Mm-hmm. So we got physical, we got sexual, we got time, we got material, we have intellectual, and then we have spiritual boundaries. And that comes with like religious stuff, um, those kind of things, like how you see the world, et cetera. Yeah, I love the way you break them down. And like you, I think time is probably the one that I struggle with the most. Right. The spiritual one is really interesting, uh, especially, you know, I'm thinking about the potential for abuse. Oh, sorry, my, my apologies, Cynthia. Spiritual is a new one I'm adding. That's the, that's the seventh boundary. Oh. Um, so I, I miss psychological boundaries. So it's physical boundaries, sexual boundaries, psychological boundaries. So that's like your fear state, your that's where people abuse you, then it's material intellectual time. I'm adding spiritual now because it's a new thing. So my apologies. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So now seven types of boundaries. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I hadn't really I've thought about all of them. The, the spiritual one is one I'm going to have to think about a little bit, though. But I think you know, depending on how you define spiritual. Right. It's really, I think what you're getting at is it's, it's your beliefs. It's your beliefs about the world. Correct. It's your beliefs throughout the world or like ways that religious or spiritual organizations can manipulate you, right? So mm-hmm. they, 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 violate your, they violate your other boundaries through spiritual mechanisms, right? So mm-hmm. that's not what the X person in our belief system would have done. Kind of. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Interesting. Well, thank you. I, I agree with you that boundaries are basically the the thread that yeah. like if if you don't have that, you can't create anything else as well as if you have them. Well, ex- exactly. Uh, if you don't know your fundamental, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yes. The, the foundation. A hundred percent correct. If you don't know who you are as a person, if you don't know what you it's I, I can break it down to the saying, right? If you don't stand for anything, you fall for everything. That's kind of what this is, right? Is a lot of people haven't sat down and thought about this stuff. They don't sit down to be like, okay, so what are my material boundaries? They just get mad, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, my friend keeps boring my truck and never puts gas in it. And I'm like, did you tell them to put gas in it? They're like, well, no, but it's implied. And that's where boundary setting fails, implied boundaries, where you Mm -hmm. think people are going to read your mind on what you want them to do. That's just not how it works. You need to express it and verbalize it, talk about it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, you know, sometimes I think we don't even know that a boundary exists until we get that discomfort or anger with a situation. And that's where it takes some self-awareness and the willingness to do some introspection to ask, like, why, why is this bothering me so much? And, you know, pro tip, it's probably a boundary issue. (laughs) Exactly. I agree. Pro tip (laughs) indeed. (laughs) Have you been struggling with concerns about your emotional or physical safety? I want to let you know about an exciting new coaching program that can help you get peace of mind and confidence. I've spent more than 20 years learning how to recognize and avoid people and situations that might be dangerous and how to get out of threatening situations if I couldn't avoid them. I would love to put this experience to use, coaching you and designing your own personalized strategy for keeping yourself safe. Now, my normal coaching rate is $500 a month, but I figured out a way to make this as affordable as I possibly can as an exclusive offer for just eight people. This is the Power Up Your Safety Laser Coaching Program. And in this program, I will work with you over short 15-minute calls to tap into your natural abilities so that you don't have to memorize techniques that you might forget in the heat of the moment, to develop strategies, tools, and skills to protect yourself and not rely on someone else like 911 or your significant other to step in and save you, to learn physical self-defense skills based on what everybody can do that work no matter what your age, size, or shape. You also learn how predators, abusers, and criminals operate so that you can recognize warning signs and avoid being in dangerous situations. You'll create mental blueprints for real scenarios that you might face, which means that you'll be ready to act, not stuck trying to figure out what to do in the moment and you'll develop a powerful mindset so that you are motivated to take action and don't feel intimidated or stuck in fear. So for these eight select clients, this program is less than $84 a month for a full year of unlimited 15-minute laser coaching sessions with me. We start with a 30-minute call so that I can learn more about your specific concerns and questions about keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. And then, with each 15-minute call, we will agree on your homework for you to do so that you can take action between calls to move forward. And once you've done your homework, you can schedule your next call. So, for example, you can have your call on a Wednesday, do your homework assignment right after your call, and schedule your next call right away. 
If you recognize that this is the perfect solution to move you from where you are now to where you want to be, just go to my website, CynthiaJolikerRude.com slash laser to find out how you can apply to be one of the select group of personal clients who will get one full year of personal coaching from me for under $84 a month. Now, I just want to let you know that I do guarantee my program and my coaching. So if during our first call, you feel as though this is actually not a program for you, I will promptly return your money in full. So there's no risk at all to you in exploring this option. For those women who don't want to jump into a group program or who don't want to spend large amounts of time improving their personal safety, this is the way to go because we can go at the pace that you want to go spend as much time as you want to spend each week or each month. And what we cover is personalized and customized just for you. I'm so excited to be able to offer this solution for you to help you overcome your concerns about your safety and to finally get you some peace of mind, confidence, and freedom. And I'm thrilled to be able to offer it in a way that suits your schedule and can be customized to meet your specific needs. So if you're interested in becoming one of the select number of clients, go to CynthiaJolikerRude.com slash laser and sign up today. Well, so you've worked with women in the First Nations. And I remember the first time that you and I worked one-on-one, we were talking about boundaries. And you had a story that was just shocking for me that related to a young woman who basically had been very well groomed and didn't have any boundaries. Can you talk a little bit about that and and also about what you've learned by working with with women in the First Nations and maybe just even explain kind of what that means. Like sure. First Nation, you know, are it's different in Canada than it is here in the US, I think. But can you just kind of explain what that's all about and what you've learned? And and I'd love if you could share that story too, because it's powerful. Absolutely. So I have, I, I think, I think I know the story you're talking about. The problem is, is I have no shortage of stories like that from the First Nations. So <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's all, when I say First Nations, First Nations, Métis and Inuit. First Nations, Inuit, and Métis are the three indigenous people that exist in Canada, but also in the U.S. We just use different terms. And so all that means is the people that were here before the Westerners came over. So the way that they like to be called, because the word Aboriginal technically could be used for any peoples, right? It could be like there's Mm -hmm. Aboriginals in Australia. There's Aboriginals in like the Aboriginals in Scotland are Scottish people. The people naturally from that place, right? So the way we classify it here is uh, you may, some people say native. It's just that's not used here anymore. We say First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. So First Nations are all of the First Nations, the tribes, the Iroquois, the Cree, the Blackfoot, etc. Métis are people that were like uh, interbred is the word I'm going to use. I'm not trying to make it sound bad. It's just they're usually French and First Nations combined. That's a Métis. And then Inuit are the people who live up north. And they're different mm-hmm. peoples. They see themselves different. So that's what I mean when I say that. And so Canada has a checkered past of dealing with people like that. And they put them on reserves. I think you have reserves there as well. So when I work with the First Nations people, I often go to their land 
And I talked to them about self-defense and boundaries. And I worked with a really amazing woman. Her name is Amanda Welliver, and she runs a company called Paradigm Self-Esteem. And she hired me as a subcontractor. And it, it's opened my eyes. Like all the work I do with her has been amazing for a good and for bad. There's a video I put up where I'm like crying because I traumatized somebody on the reserve by accident because I didn't know what I was doing and I had to learn from it. But I got a lot of lessons from it just because it's a very different culture. And they come from a place of oppression where like a lot of the, the, the band land, the, the reserves, they don't even have clean drinking water. So it's a different place. There's a lot of economic disparity, which then usually breeds the bad stuff happening, right? When times are bad, people become worse. So more things happen that wouldn't happen here. So what somebody would consider, so like a great example, I tell my stabbing story in a, because I've been stabbed a couple of times, but the one I always tell for like the like big sell, like listen to me, I'm a cool guy. The one I tell that one, if I'm in a boardroom, it's like, oh my God, that's crazy. When I, I'm going to reserve, like how many times? And then we we swap stabbing stories. Does that make sense? Oh like goodness. it's just, it's a, it's a different, it's a different experience, which is why I say I work with such a diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. So one of the times I was working, I was training with a group and I don't remember which group it was, but it was North of me, which is crazy. Cause I'm pretty North in Canada, but it goes way further North. And we were talking about setting up boundaries. It was physical boundaries. This is before I had the six boundaries that I adopted from an author. I forget her name off the top of my head. This before I had any of this, it was just like the short-term self-defense boundary, right? Put up a physical boundary, express a verbal boundary, express enforcement, like the standard mm-hmm. model. And I was like, so why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? And she's like, well, why would I do any of this? And I was like, well, what do you mean? Why, why wouldn't you? And she's like, well, everybody just uses my body whenever they want. What's the purpose of me trying to enforce that? And that took me a minute to digest. It took me a second to absorb that like her entire experience is people get to do whatever they want to her. So me trying to sell her a boundary as a person who doesn't live there, who doesn't know her life, who is white. So it looks like like I'm rich, right? It looks like I come from a place of privilege, even though I grew up with First Nations. It's very hard for her to grasp that. It was very hard for me to respond because it was such a horrific thing. And so her backstory was she was kidnapped by her uncle and she was kept in a crawl space for a year. She was only fed potato chips as sustenance and she was pulled out only for parties, if you know what I mean. Mm So, of course, her experience is, why would I ever try to set a boundary up? Her experience was, we fixed that luckily, her experience was, why would I ever do this? Why would I ever like uh, all of my experience? Cause obviously she tried, she didn't want this to happen to her. She clearly fought back the first couple of times. She clearly tried to do everything that we're showing her. It just mm-hmm. in her experience didn't happen. Fun. This is a depressing story. So listeners, just so you know, we got her out of there she has a boyfriend now and she's going to university. She's doing very, very well. We got her some grants. I used my personal references to get her some interviews. She's doing very, very good now. But that's awesome. Yeah. But the the this the problem is is that that's not a unique story when I mm-hmm. go to reserves. It's it happens all the time. I had another one, another lady who was she's out now too. She's actually a Thai boxer now. She's killing it right now. Oh, um, wow. But when she started, she was a very weak and fragile human being. She had a bunch of uh, horrible things happen to her. And it was family members. And it was like, well, you can't even trust your family. Like, how are you gonna trust some random outsider? 
Um, mm-hmm. And the time it took myself and Amanda to help her was insane, but it luckily worked out. Well, I mean, those are really disturbing stories. And, and I can, I can see how, if you're in that situation and you have tried, you know, all the things yeah, and just basically been overpowered and, and denied the ability to affect any kind of change, you would reach a point where it's just like, well, what's the point? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's no point in me even trying because it's not going to do any good. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that space of feeling powerless and hopeless is just a, a horrendous place to be. And so I think the fact that, that you have been able to help women, you know, get out of those spaces. Cause that's the thing. Like if you're, if you're still in the environment, the same environment, yeah, it's mighty hard to affect any kind of change, but to get out of that environment into a new one, that's where you can start to say, okay, new life, new, new skills. Yep. Uh, and I think, so yeah, kudos to you for, for doing that work and also for, you know, going that extra bit because you could very easily have just gone, Oh, well, I mean, I got nothing for your situation. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I th- thank you. That's not definitely not why I do it, but it's, it's interesting too. And this is, I think a problem with like the self-defense industry kind of as a whole, this is my pet peeves in my opinion is that, you know, we walk into that reserve and I, I get this woman, woman now, she was a girl then, I get this woman who has experienced horrific things that I couldn't even possibly imagine or maybe just like saw in a movie and thought was fake, right? And I could distance myself from it. And now I have three hours to help her. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, oh, what's my three hour, like punchy, kicky course going to do? It's just not going to mm-hmm. evoke that change. And what I think a lot of, if I'm assuming you have a lot of instruction to listen to this is, what you need to realize is not everybody is starting the race at the same starting line, right? Some people start athletic from a good family and they're, they're good to go. But some people have like, they're starting at a different point in the race. It might've took them 18 tries to email you. They might've panicked every time they walked into class. So you need to remember that like what they're presenting and what they've gone through are different things. And that, you know, just because they're not progressing at the speed you want them to progress doesn't mean they're not progressing at all. Because again, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not an even, it's not an even field, right? Somebody that comes in. So, you know, mixed martial arts guy trained his whole life, had enough money to do high level division sports comes into your class. And then kid from the a poor economic area with no support, no physical structure, malnourished comes in with trauma. Like they're go, they're both taking the same course, but they're starting at very different points. So if mm-hmm. we can realize that the starting line isn't the same for everybody, I think that makes us all better at what we do. Absolutely. And, you know, just thinking about the the programs for women, you know, the odds of having women in, in your program or in your classes who have experienced some form of trauma and violence are like, it's really high. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, there's more likely more in there than you would even think would be there, yeah. uh, but not everybody. And different kinds of experiences. For for some people, it was like a single event. Mm-hmm. Others, it was years of abuse. And I think that this awareness that you're talking about, that everybody starts where they are. Yeah. The gift in that is if you're a really good coach, then your goal is to meet each person where they are, not try to you know, have a thing that applies equally in a blanket fashion to everybody at the same time. And that to me is, that's where the power comes, just having that personal connection as a coach and being able to meet each person 
where they are and say, okay, well, this would be helpful for you now, or this would be a challenging thing for you to tackle now rather than, well, this is the way the program goes. We start here right. and we do this and then we do this and then we do that. And then you're done. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. I think that like that awareness, especially like, and then this isn't for everything. Like, I don't want us, I don't want people to think I'm applying this blanket to everything. If they're taking a football program, they have to do the football program. If they're doing a, a MMA program, they got to do the MMA program. I'm talking primarily self-defense where yeah, we're, where we're looking at people and trying to make them better. Like I think Tammy says from strength to strength, right? right. They have strength. It might not be the quantifiable strength that you know, like that young woman is stronger than I'll ever be. She survived that. And the reason I, I actually triggered her in the story, because I don't want to come across like, uh, like I'm hundred percent a hero in this. I mess up all the time, but she was making it with her boyfriend for 90% of the course. And I was actually getting frustrated. I was like, and so I started like, I got, I'm a loud guy and everybody's always like, Randy, stop yelling. And I'm like, trust me, you'll know when I'm yelling. So <laughs> when I yelled at her, I shut her down. And I got, we have a signal myself and Amanda where she puts up the letter T, which stands for that client is traumatized. And so I was like, oh no, I didn't know. And I find out like, you know, she, she stopped paying attention. She didn't believe in this stuff because how could she, she had this horrible experience and she's, but she's still okay enough to flirt with her boyfriend. And you know what I mean? Like that's a level of strength that I don't know if I even have that she can go to uh, like try to find a semblance of a normal life. Like that's so impressive. So mm-hmm. not everybody's standards are the same. Like her well of strength is, is probably way deeper than mine when it comes to those areas. You might say she was born to be a badass. Yeah, oh, I might. I should have. <laughs> well, so you've also worked with women who are in the sex trade. And I, I yeah. know that the situation in Canada is different than it is here in the US and from other places around the world. Uh, but regardless of where where these women are are doing this work, they are always among the most vulnerable when it yeah. comes to experiencing violence. So what are some of the issues that come up when you're working with women in that sex trade? And like, what can you offer? What do you suggest in terms of safety sure. for them? I think this is one of the areas where I, I butt heads with self-defense coaches the most, especially male ones, not that I'm trying to stereotype everybody, but I'm definitely on the sex work is work side of things. I'm not on the all sex work is equal side of things. While I understand there's issues in it, the issues come from the demonization of it. They don't come from the actual work. So for me, I think one of the biggest issues in it is that the demonization, right? Is yes, there are people in horrific situations that we need to save. That's wrong. But there are people that are willingly doing this and the people that are willingly doing it don't need to be saved. They need to just do what they're going to do. That's their choice. They're adults. If you believe in freedom, that's a freedom. So when people, when we're dealing with this, what you said was exactly correct is they are one of the most vulnerable sectors. And in Canada, that's how they're treated. So Canada has a very similar model to the Scandinavian countries where it's not illegal to be a sex worker, but it is illegal to use a sex worker. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if uh, somebody pays for the service, that's illegal. They can be arrested, but being a sex worker isn't illegal. And I think that's one of the most important ways to structure it because that gives the women the ultimate authority. If somebody hurts them, that that person committed a crime, a high level crime instantaneously. That's the way it should work. So in that field, because in Edmonton, I work with, I work with quite a few sex workers. It's weird. It kind of just happened. Um, And I think it happened for a couple of reasons. Number one, I didn't try to exchange services for services, which I guess is a problem. 
Barter's oh, yeah, barter system, I guess, is a real problem with self-defense coaches up here. I mean, also I don't hit on them weird. Like I treat them like human beings. I don't assume their job is their personality, which is I guess rare as well. So it happens. Yeah. So I work with a lot. I work, I think I have like six private clients on the roster right now. And so their their biggest issues are ex- exactly that, right? It's like if you look at pop culture, right? It's okay to kill a hooker in a TV show. Nobody cares. They're not people, right? They're like, and that's mm-hmm. such a trope, right? Oh, the hooker's addicted to drugs. Oh, the hooker is blah, 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 blah. And it becomes this trope. So with that as the social stigma, it gives the people that use them this justification that they're dealing with a subhuman. It, it Culture is othering them, which allows the people to do higher levels of violence. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. In essence. So when women are, I think one of the biggest things about it is the women need to set, like we're going to go back to boundaries again. They need to set boundaries in who they're going to work with, how they're going to be treated, how they're going to do stuff. I'm actually doing this interesting project. It's coming out soon, so I don't mind revealing it on your show, but it's the first time I'm talking about it in public. So scoop for Ooh. you. I, I have been running one of my clients' social media and phones as her for the last month to see what kind of interaction she has every day. So I'm getting a firsthand look at how people are talking to her, how people treat her, what people expect. So I'm like undercover bossing this. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. And so I'm creating a whole publication. We're going to put it on Patreon as always, but it's been a very eye-opening experience. So the things I'm, I'm learning from this are like, number one, they don't support each other. So A lot of the time, other sex workers will build fake calls or do fake things to mess up the one who's currently working because it messes up their ads. It messes up everything because it's a business like anything else, right? There's pay-per-click ads. There's all the stuff you would do for regular business. But also like just the entitlements of the clients is insane. And in some of them, I would say borders on dangerous. So because people don't see them as people, because we other them, it's very easy for them to throw these people away. And so... The dangers are not listening to your instincts, not listening to that little voice in your head when somebody's being weird because the interactions they have are, there's a lot of them. And if you don't keep your boundaries, you're going to run into bad clients. Now, this again is business 101, right? You run a business, Cynthia. You know that Mm -hmm. like the clients that ask for the most discounts are the worst clients. They, (laughs) right? They just, they take forever. They're always complaining. And the people that pay full price, you never hear from ever again. They just love the product and they move on. It's the same thing here. So when guys are looking for like, whether it's online sex works, like OnlyFans, which is a huge huge market now because of COVID, or it's in-person work or it's stripping or whatever area of sex work these people fall into. It's trusting those instincts, but also like having little micro boundaries to test them. We did this at the front door. So we used to have a dress code. The dress code wasn't installed by management. It was installed by us. And the only reason we had it was so we could say to somebody, hey, you can't wear that hat in here. If the person like, oh, I'm sorry and complied, we knew they weren't going to be a problem the rest of the night. But if they started giving us crap at the front door, we knew they were going to be a problem for the rest of the night. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's the same thing when you're setting boundaries and it's the same thing for sex workers. So if you're setting boundaries with a new relationship and you set a tiny, tiny boundary, like, hey, don't text me after 10 o'clock. If they don't text you after 10 o'clock, that's probably a good person. But if they can't even handle a tiny boundary and they text you at 11 o'clock, oh, I'm sorry, I'm drunk and I really wanted to talk to you. If they can't follow a simple, tiny boundary, how do you think they're going to react 
to big boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with the sex work stuff is all of the women that I work with, because I do like a weird little like business advisory because I've worked with so many. Um, I tell them they should take deposits and they should have clearly on their website what is expected. And any client that doesn't give a deposit or doesn't read their website, you probably should interact with because mm-hmm. they're not putting the research in. They don't see you as a person. They don't respect your time. So this is across the board. I know we're trying to talk about sex work in general, but the same rules apply across the board. If somebody doesn't respect you, you shouldn't be interacting with that person. Wow. That's really, that's fascinating. You know, and I I wonder if you would have come to the same sort of realizations if you hadn't been working with this population, because it's absolutely essential for them to have these sort of tripwires. Yeah. And also things like just your general safety stuff, right? Like make sure people know where you are, if you can do, because we have, there's like different methods of service and in-person is obviously the most dangerous. I'm not saying cyber stalking isn't dangerous. People can find online women if they try hard enough. Uh, mm-hmm. But in-person obviously is your biggest risk. It's like a traffic stop for police officers. You don't know who you're going to get. So I think them knowing that, like, so people knowing where they are, like I have two of my, two of the clients that work with me, they, if they, they feel like they're in a dangerous situation, they will debrief it with me after, but they have people they can talk to. I don't want to be involved, like involved, involved. That's just not my place, but they will debrief me on it after and be like, Hey, so this is what happened. I had to tell my friend I was here, blah, 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 blah. Just because violence is violence is violence, right? Like these people are probably, if they're doing this, these sex workers, they're probably not great at home. I would assume so we can learn a lot of lessons from the vulnerable segments of population on how people just kind of react in general. Mm-hmm. Yes, we can. And, and I think one of the really valuable things about talking about what they experience and, and you know, what life is actually like dealing with people who don't respect boundaries and who are quite capable of othering another person. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing for me is that often as a as a good human being it's hard to even think up how just awful another human being is capable of being yeah and so when when you hear these stories from from people who have actually been on the receiving end and experienced it it it's not fun but it does in a way serve a purpose which is to kind of like you talked about at the very beginning you know pull the wool from your eyes yeah and say, you know, I, I know as a as a good human, you would never think of doing X, Y, and Z. Right. And, you know, here are some examples of of people and how creative that, <laughs> you know, people who are behaving badly can actually be. And I think that for me, the reason that's valuable is because if we can talk about it and think about it, that helps us come up with some mental blueprints of how we might deal with it. But it also minimizes, you know, the likelihood that we're just gonna freeze and be in shock if we encounter that same kind of behavior. A hundred percent. If you can't identify something, you cannot resolve that something, right? So if you don't know what something is, the odds of you responding appropriately are almost impossible. So it is very important that we we do talk to people in vulnerable sectors and we hear everybody's stories and we, we you know, we validate and we talk because like you said, right, if you're a good person, you're, you're not going to think about this stuff, but we have to remember that humans are problem solving creatures. If you change the problem to how would I hurt somebody, you're going to come up with a lot of easy ways to hurt somebody. And if you can come up with that as a good person, imagine what somebody with experience can come up with. Mm-hmm. So I said the F word and, <laughs> and I wasn't planning to, but since I said freeze, I'm, I'm curious if you could just share some of your thoughts on freezing because yeah. 
you are one of the few coaches that I know who has a very interesting and you know, thought-provoking way of looking at what what freezing is. It's not just one thing. So no. can you talk a little bit about, about freezes and how you get out of them? Because that is the biggest fear that most women I talk to have is I'm afraid that something's going to happen and I'm just going to freeze and stand there and do nothing. Sure. Yeah. So I think freezing is, is that's like the first thing that kind of put me on the scene as the cool, cool kids would say, or maybe not even the cool kids anymore. They probably something different. Gen Z talks different, but <laughs> yeah. So freezing to me was a huge thing. Uh, freezing is the reason I turned to this kind of work and I'm not doing just sport-based martial arts. Um, it's because I froze the night I was stabbed. The big, the big badass story, right? Where I'm not really a bad, I'm not really a badass at all. I'm mostly just, uh, <laughs> I'm mostly just, I will survive because of luck. But that really affected me. It mentally affected me. It's what it's how I found Roy Miller's book. It it did everything. After I got stabbed, I stopped doing martial arts for an entire year. I thought they were fake and BS and they didn't work at all. So freezing's always fascinated me because the human brain is such an interesting thing. So the way I look at freezing is is a little different. And this is again just like my view on sex work. I think this rubs some people the wrong way, but it's the most current research I found, and I haven't found it refuted yet. They just don't like it because it's not their model. Is there's three levels of freeze when it comes to like mental freezes, and that's the most likely one. People talk about physical freezes. Most physical freezes are actually cognitive freezes where the brain has shut you down. I think it was like Grossman said 8% of people actually physically freeze and their brains are going. Now, I think one of the biggest pet peeves I have in the industry is people saying, how do I break the freeze, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know that, and you know, I don't like this. So I think you cued me up on purpose, but um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so in essence, you can't break a freeze. If you're frozen, you're frozen. You don't break a freeze. If you start thinking about how to break a freeze, you are no longer frozen. So the definition of a freeze is your brain isn't processing anything. And the way that I, the model that I use, is a three-level model when it comes to these types of freeze. So freeze number one, we call the discriminatory freeze, and that's your common everyday freeze. We've all experienced it. So a discriminatory freeze is somebody goes boo, and you like stop for a second, and then you giggle or whatever, right? That's a freeze. That's your body saying, okay, there was a loud noise. Do I need to prepare myself for something different? It lasts half a second to two seconds, depending on who you are. But also trauma is a factor in this as well, but we'll get to that. So we're going to assume the person has a healthy brain with no trauma at this moment for this part of the model. I hope that makes sense. So it's discriminatory because in that moment, your brain is trying to like identify, is it a threat or not? Correct. Yeah. And it's like, so, and we've all felt this, right? You were startled. Maybe somebody popped in your vision. You kind of froze for a second then you laughed it off. That's your normal discriminatory freeze. And that's a very good definition of it. The next level of freeze is a little bit deeper is what we call the shock freeze. Now, the shock freeze is something happened that you kind of expected, but it happened in a manner you didn't expect it to. So example, in my personal life, the first time, so all of the punch I took to the face in my youth were with gloves on, most of. So my brain thought it knew what a punch was. The first time I got punched by a guy with rings on his hand, I experienced a shocked freeze. Because my brain was like, oh, I thought we knew what a punch was. Mm -hmm. This was different. Do we need to change our response tree here? So a shock freeze is the one that is most commonly talked about in almost all self-defense fields. And it lasts about seven seconds. And again, when we go further, you can shrink this with training. Then the last level of freeze that we talk about is, a uh, sorry, is an overwhelmed freeze. And this is where your brain is overwhelmed. So something happened that either number one, you have no 
options to stop or two, it was something you couldn't even believe was going to happen. So the example I like to use for like this entire, oh, so let's go overwhelm freeze first. So with the overwhelm freeze, your brain is in a shock state. It's too much information. You're overwhelmed. And so through most of our evolution, doing nothing was the best way to survive. So if a large animal roared and you froze, the predator's eyes might not track you. And it was such an effective survival mechanism that almost all humans freeze. I'm, I, I don't, I would say all, but I never want to say all when it comes to people. I'm sure some mm-hmm. people don't freeze, <laughs> but I would say of the most humans freeze because it was such a good survival mechanism. Now, detection freeze, that's what it's for. Shock freeze is something happens that you kind of expect happens differently. Second example I like to use is office massage guy decides to hit on you at the Christmas party. You might be shocked. You might be like, uh... I thought you were just creepy at work. I didn't realize you wanted to level up the creep, right? Mm-hmm. And then overwhelmed is either I have no good options. So I have a horrible story where a woman was tied to a table and she froze in overwhelmed freeze because she couldn't get out. Or you just didn't expect this to happen, right? So example, my daughter, when she was five, was obsessed with my little pony. So it's important to the story. So <laughs> if, if in real life I was walking and a baby unicorn jumped into my arms, I would have an overwhelmed freeze because I'd be like, what? Unicorns are real? What is happening? This changes my worldview entirely. So my brain would shut down while I was trying to process the information it was getting. That's an essence of freeze. My daughter at age five would at best have a discriminatory freeze. It would land in her arms and be like, oh my God, I've been training for this my whole life. And she'd just go right to pet (laughs) town, right? So this is where the next piece of this comes in, which is the model I talk about, which is training versus trauma. Now, when we look at the freeze, we have three levels. The the highest or the the smallest level is you're overwhelmed and sorry, is discriminatory. And the deepest freeze we have is overwhelmed. Does that make sense? So it's it's like a hierarchy almost training will reduce the depth and duration of your freeze. So if women are freaking out when they're talking to you that they might freeze training is the answer. Put yourself in as many situations as possible. Use situational training, understand these things happen. Don't put your head in the sand. If you get all of that, the odds of you overwhelming freezing are very, very low. The more you train, the more the depth and duration of the freeze changes. So I'm trying to say you cannot break a freeze, but you can train yourself to freeze less often and for less time. That's what training Mm -hmm. does. Trauma does the exact opposite. Trauma increases depth and duration of freeze. So the first model we talked about is a healthy brain, right? If somebody scares you and you're not, you don't have a trauma-based response system, you're going to get shocked and you're going to laugh. If you have excessive trauma and somebody scares you, you might go all the way to an overwhelmed freeze because your brain is so traumatized that any overstimulation immediately creates a shutdown. That's what that young lady was experiencing when she said, why would I bother trying to defend myself when people use my body? She was automatically, as a survival mechanism, going directly to an overwhelmed freeze. And honestly, freezing in those situations is good. Because it takes your body away, it takes your brain away from your body. It's like when people say, you know, it's like they were watching something happen to them, like a ghost above their body. That's mm-hmm. an overwhelmed freeze because their brain is somewhere else while the bad things are happening to the body. So understand the three levels of freezes is important, but also understanding that training and trauma either increase or decrease depth and duration. And that's again why people aren't starting at the same level, right? If somebody yeah. comes highly traumatic with a highly traumatized background, 
and you put them in armor to do a scenario, like I just said, they might go into a fetal position because the only freeze response they have left is overwhelm freeze. So it's going to be our job to guide them step by step. So, okay, cool. Maybe this is too much. Just put on the elbow pads today and train all day in elbow pads. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you can lead them up. One of my clients, one of my sex worker clients, actually the first one that I ever had, that was her issue. She only had traumatized responses, oddly, not from the sex work, from her past before that. So she had zero experience having success using physical skills. She was constantly overwhelmed. She couldn't get through gym classes. She couldn't do anything. So to start training with her, like she couldn't even hit pads. Mm-hmm. Hitting a pad was too much for her. So like, cool. So what we're going to do today is we hit a pad once. And if you feel like doing it a second time, you won't. But just so you know, in two weeks, we have to hit the pad three times and give those measurable goals. And now she doesn't live here. She lives somewhere else and she has a full-time Thai boxing coach. So she's doing fine, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's the important issue is freezing. You can't, the only way to break a freeze, we can't break a freeze. That's a misnomer. The only way to prepare, the only way to stop a freeze is preparation and understanding where your mental state is. And also understanding that different things are going to make you freeze differently, right? So if we go back to the boundaries, those six boundaries, you're going to freeze differently in all of those. Right. So if somebody physically touches you, you're going to have a freeze in one way. If somebody violates you sexually, you're going to have a different freeze response. So understand mm-hmm. that each scenario is going to be different. So that's why the stuff that you do, Cynthia, the, the scenario based stuff, the empowerment stuff, that's the biggest bang for your buck to, to tell people like everybody freezes. I can't stress this enough. I was talking mm-hmm. to a former Delta soldier. A Delta Force Ranger, whatever he was. He was some special forces. He was a cool guy. And he said that he freezes too, but he only freezes for like a minute or a minute, a second. Mm-hmm. Everybody freezes. It's all about trading the depth and duration. It's not about not freezing at all. That's impossible. Yeah. And I I love that that's kind of where you went with this because, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is why creating mental blueprints for different situations is so powerful. And this is why doing you know, realistic scenario training is mm-hmm. so powerful and, and coupling it with that sensitivity to say, you know, for many, for many people who have already experienced violence and trauma, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't throw them in the deep end. You have no. to start with sort of incremental small steps that allow, uh, you know, allows the stuff to come up. And it, it really is rewiring the brain to say, okay, actually you don't, you don't have to go there because this is this is different. Exactly. And like I think powerful is the best. That word's used a lot, but I think it's perfect here. It is powerful because honestly, if you can work them up to the place where their trauma started and you can scenario train them through their trauma, that is so mm-hmm. powerful in their recovery. That's not all you have to do. They got to go see therapists and other stuff, but that's a very good tool to help them regain that power to show them they are dangerous. It was just stuff just was out of your control. That's not your fault. Like, look what you did here. This is amazing. You can't fault yourself for not knowing this beforehand. Oh, that's huge. You know, that's that's a conversation I have frequently is, you know, talking with women and like, oh, I, I should have this and I wish yeah, no. I had that. And it's like, well, you didn't know these things then. Right. You know, and, and you survived. And um, I think one of our mutual friends likes to say nobody survives wrong. Yep. Correct. And I, I think, think that was you, but <laughs> I think I got that from Tammy, actually. Uh, oh. So I don't know. I, I say stuff all the time. So but I think that's another thing that people need to look at 
is like, so you would be shocked and I'm sure you probably run into this too. So I'm going to, I'm going to pose this question to you, Cynthia, do you run into this as well, where people survive and then they critique themselves for surviving, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had a friend that was followed and she did everything right. She took a picture of the guy, she got away and then she messaged me and she was like, oh my God, why did this happen? I'm like, well, you got selected. That happens. You can't control that. You deselect yourself. Nothing bad happened. She's like, yeah, but I should have this and that. I'm like, no, you succeeded. Why are you critiquing success? Nothing bad happened. I had same thing with boundaries. I had a client of mine. She sent me screenshots of a conversation she had with a male coworker. And she's like, how could I have set these boundaries better? I'm like, you couldn't have. These were perfect. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you did it wrong? And she's like, well, because X, Y, Z. And I think the problem that people have with this is they want to succeed faster. And they always think it's about the speed and it's not, it's about the goal. The goal Mm -hmm. is succeeding. So yeah, sure. The guy didn't listen to your boundary seven times, but on the eighth one, he did. You can't change any of that stuff. You can't control how they react. You can only do what you're going to do. And she literally, it's such a good text chain. I'm putting it in the course. Like it's (laughs) so it's, she, 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 she couldn't have done it better, but still her instinct was, Hey coach, how can I make this better? And that's, that's an instinct. We got to start losing. We have to remember the goal is success. The goal is not the, 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 the speed of the success or succeeding in the way you think you're going to succeed. It's just succeeding. Yeah, it's, it's in that realm of should. Yes. And it, it sort of combines with this belief that there is a right way to do something. And if I can just learn the right thing and the right technique and the right tool, you know, then I can deal with things the right way. And the reality is uh, Tony Blower likes to talk about things being desirable and less desirable rather than right and wrong. Ah. And, you know, sometimes there's a less desirable way to deal with something, but it still works. Exactly. And I think more people need to talk about that kind of stuff because Mm -hmm. there's so many, and and again, women are a monolith, but it's usually women that second guess themselves here. Men tend to have a false sense of confidence in a lot of this stuff. (laughs) It's a lot of women that tend to do this. And we need to, we need to shake that thought process, ladies. Like you got to, you're succeeding. That's all that matters. Yeah. You don't worry about trying. Like, obviously, if you can refine it, try and refine it. But like, take the win. Just take the win, and then and then refine it. Don't don't beat yourself up about that over and over again. Well, and also, I think sometimes we think that doing one thing should work. Yes, and you know, it, well, maybe it will, and maybe it won't. It kind of depends on the other person. But you know, you do one thing, and maybe you have to do that thing twice, or maybe you have to do something else. But that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or that you should have picked the other thing first. It's just you you have to be creative and be aware of what's happening. Look at the dynamics yeah. and recognize, well, okay, well, that didn't work. So what can I do next? Yeah. Con- context yeah. is king and it's not your system or your coach. It's you. You need yeah. to make the choices. You need to be prepared and you need to be able to adapt under that. That's what the coaches and the training and the systems help you do. But if you need to break the rules to succeed from your system, then choose success over following a system. Oh, that's perfect. Well, we have been talking, Randy, for almost an hour and a half. Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Time flies. Yeah. Uh, I have one more question for you before we wrap it up. Okay. How do you think that women and men can develop their own personal power and courage? How do I think that people can develop their own personal power and courage? I think it's pretty standard advice. I don't think I'm going to reinvent the wheel here. Just do do stuff that makes you uncomfortable and get comfortable doing it. That's that's what's going to build it. When you start to see like 
you know, sign up for that marathon or join that jujitsu class or, you know, like tell your mother-in-law Thanksgiving is your house, right? Whatever, whatever mm-hmm. mountains you're trying to climb, climb them, try them, see what happens. I bet, I bet you'll shock yourself. You're, you're made of tougher stuff than you think humans are very resilient creatures. And, you know, there is rock bottom is a place that a lot of people start from, but at least if you're at the bottom, there's nowhere to go, but up. So just keep trying things, new things, expand your horizons. Don't become a person that, you know, defines who they are at 30, 40, 50. You can get a PhD at 60 if you really try. So just, just do that. So focus every day, do some stuff that makes you uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be daily. You don't have to like take cold showers, do Wim Hof method or any of that stuff. You don't want to, but like do the uncomfortable thing. And and you'd be surprised how much that will just naturally build your both emotional and physical resiliency. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Randy. This has been an absolute blast. And I'm I'm very grateful that you were willing to come on the show and share all the things that you have. I know that people are going to want to get in touch with you. And I just want to put in a plug and say, you know, reach out, find Randy online, enroll in some of his programs, and you will not regret it. You will learn things you never knew you needed to know, to learn and love it while you're doing it. So where can people find you, Randy? Oh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I will chat with you anytime you want to chat. This was a super fun conversation. Uh, you, I'm pretty easy to find. I love my own name. So you can find me at uh, <laughs> social media. Instagram is where you find me the most at Randy King Live. On Facebook, your best bet is the Randy King Live community. RandyKingLive.com has access to everything, my podcast, courses, etc. Randy King Live podcast channel is a really good spot to find me. And if you want extras and more educational content, because I've, I've moved more to an education-based self-defense instruction than I have physical, um, join my Patreon. Tier 2 gives you bi-weekly information classes where we talk about where predators hide and victim blaming and a bunch of cool stuff. So free stuff, there's a ton. And if you want to invest more, you can go to our Teachable, find our Realities of Violence or Boundary Setting course, or you can join us on Patreon. Sweet. Yes, I, I do it. I am so <laughs> glad that, you know, I was able to get in on your Patreon kind of early and have had the benefit of some of your online courses as well as being able to to play with you in real life. So yeah, do it every day. You know, for you, anytime I get a chance to talk with you or train with you, I'm going to jump at it because it's always fun. And I always learn things that I didn't know I didn't know. Oh, thank you so much. I love that. That's the best review I could possibly get. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Randy. It's been just a joy to have you on the show. Thanks. Anytime. This is the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.